And didn't Shauna do a great, did a great job preaching the other week? Yes, she did. Give her a hand. She was fantastic. I appreciate uh, Shauna and, and Dwayne Polk uh, filling in. Uh, both of them did excellent jobs the last couple of weeks on delivering the word. Love to see what God's doing in their life as they're developing uh, this gift. And uh, they're a blessing to us and to the kingdom. Amen. I'm Greg Boyd. I've been gone for a couple of weeks, but it's good to be back. I love you all. You look wonderful this morning. Uh, it's just been, been away a little bit. I'll say a little more about that a little bit later on. Uh, we are in the book of Luke, of course, and we're up to chapter 19. Uh, I'm going to entitle this message, confessionally, I am a hypocrite. Uh, now, I, I, don't worry, I'm not going to, you know, come up with some kind of Jimmy Swigert revelation in the middle of the sermon. Some people <laughs> were worried about that. But the statement is true nonetheless, and maybe by the end of the sermon, I'll have convinced us all that we're hypocrites. Uh, and there's a value in that, as we'll see. But uh, here's the deal. Jesus has been talking about going to Jerusalem since chapter 11, back in 2005, I think it was. We started this travel narrative. He's been talking about Jerusalem and things like that. And now we're to the point where it's the beginning of the passion narrative. This is the climax of all the Gospels, where Jesus is going to head into Jerusalem. And then some things, uh, some very interesting and important things happen. So this is right on the precipice. This is the beginning of his entry into Jerusalem. We're reading from Luke chapter 19, starting with verse 28. After Jesus had said this, the stuff that's been preached the last couple weeks, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached, as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. I'll be reading some other verses from this passage here in a moment, but I'm going to sprinkle in a few comments as I'm going through this, and then we'll get to the meat of this message. Um, there is some discussion about whether or not Jesus knew where this uh, donkey was uh, based on uh, a supernatural word of knowledge, or whether he just happened to know a guy who had this donkey. Uh, and it could go either way. We know that in the ancient world, um, in, in this area anyways, many times people who were at the edge of town would have colts, donkeys available for people to rent. Uh, so they could ride around town. It was sort of the Avis rented donkey of the first century. And so since Jesus was familiar with these areas, it could very well be he just knew that this guy had this uh, uh, young colt. Or it could have been divine revelation. doesn't really matter. The more important issue is, is this. Why did Jesus insist on riding on a colt that had never been ridden before? And a lot of times in these little incidental details, you'll find ra rather significant facts. Here's the thing. In the Old Testament, if any animal was consecrated to do work for Yahweh, it had to be an animal that hadn't ever done any non-Yahweh work, if you will, any mundane, ordinary task. And it was a way of, for the ancient Israelites to keep the, the mundane world separate from the holiness of God. So anything that was consecrated to God couldn't be also used for mundane purposes. In, ask, in Jesus requiring that he ride on this donkey that had never been ridden before, he was, in essence, putting himself in the position of Yahweh. This is a veiled reference to his own deity. Only Yahweh has the right to demand this 
and Jesus does. And so it shows that Jesus is here uh, putting himself in the position of Yahweh. We also have to ask, why did he need a colt in the first place? He's only about a half mile or so outside of Jerusalem. He's been walking all over the place throughout the book of, of Luke. Uh, it, it's not like they, they're not used to walking. So why does he need to ride the last half mile? And the answer is not that he was getting tired. The answer is that he wanted to intentionally fulfill a prophecy. The prophecy is from the book of uh, Zechariah, chapter 9. And it says this. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, which is to say on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And so here's this prophecy written 500 years before Jesus was ever born that there'd come a time when their king, their real king, would come riding into Jerusalem and uh, it would be on this young colt. Jesus was fulfilling that. Now, interestingly enough, there's another prophecy about the Messiah found three chapters later in the book of Zechariah. And it says this. The Lord says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me. Now, this is Yahweh talking. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. It's interesting. Now, Jesus, of course, also fulfilled this prophecy. Because when he was crucified, his wrists were pierced, his ankles were pierced, his side was pierced. And what he's saying is that there's coming a time when uh, the Israelites will look upon the one they have pierced and they'll mourn for him. It's really clear that even in the Old Testament, there's at least some prophecies that understood that the Messiah, though he would be human, he had to be human to be pierced, he'd also be Yahweh. This is Yahweh talking in uh, uh, Zechariah chapter 12. So Jesus fulfills both. It also shows that in the Old Testament, you'll find two sets of prophecies about the Messiah. One set talks about victory, conquering the enemies and, and liberating God's people. But another set talks about suffering, the Zechariah 12 uh, kind of suffering, Isaiah 53. Now, because of, or at least partly because the Jews of this time were under severe Roman oppression, they all wanted deliverance immediately. And we always look, find in the Word of God what we want to find. And so they saw all the promises about victory. And they liked those and celebrated those. The, the prophecies about suffering prior to the victory, uh, they didn't really get those. Uh, they were kind of blinded to that. And that's going to become important uh, later on as we go on with this, this message. Okay, to return back to the uh, Luke passage, it says they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it, so they kind of made a saddle for him. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks, their outer garments, on the road. Now we know from other sources that this was uh, not a common practice, but it, it, it had precedent in the ancient world where some people would acknowledge that a person riding on some animal was a king by throwing their outer garments on the ground for the animal to walk on. It's a way of saying, we are subject to you. We acknowledge that you are king. And here, as Jesus starts to ride on this donkey, uh, the people are, are, are doing this. And then it says, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives... The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had see, uh, seen. And they sang, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. 
peace in heaven uh, and glory in the highest. Here Jesus starts to make his final descent, coming down the Mount of Olives, going into Jerusalem. And as he turns the corner and makes his final descent, the crowd goes crazy. And they're rejoicing and they're celebrating and they're singing. What they're singing, interestingly enough, is a psalm. The psalm is 118. The verse that Luke quotes is verse 26, though in all probability they sang the whole psalm. What's, a re what's really interesting is that this psalm was originally composed uh, for a king coming back from battle, a victorious battle, and the people then going out to meet him and welcome him, him into the, uh, the city of Jerusalem. And then he, in, in the original psalm, he goes to the temple and the temple priests welcome him and bless him and thank God for the victory. So these people, as they're applying this psalm to Jesus, it tells you a whole lot about where their mind and where their theology is at. They think Jesus is already victorious. They're, they're celebrating the fact that he's already king. And they think he's going into Jerusalem and is going to be welcomed by the temple, the temple authorities. But of course, the irony is that, as a matter of fact, Jesus hadn't really begun to fight even. Uh, he was going to battle. And in fact, he was going into a battle in Jerusalem, as we'll see here in the weeks to come, that, he, that it would look initially like he lost. And the, the temple authorities, the priests and whatnot, far from welcoming Jesus as king, well, the, the temple becomes the main place where the battle starts. And that's what ends up getting Jesus crucified. So, so there's a world of difference between where these people's minds are at and where their theology at and what's in fact going to happen in reality. And then to finish up uh, the passage in Luke, it says this. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now the force of that is this. They say, teacher, this is the Pharisees now. This is the last time we read about the Pharisees in public in the book of Luke. After this, they get so mad, they go and they start plotting his, his uh, death. But they say, teacher. And in other words, they're saying, you are a teacher. You are not Lord. You are not king. You are just a teacher, right? So why are you letting these people praise you as though you were more than that? If Jesus is just a teacher, then the accolades that these people are showering on Jesus are utterly inappropriate. And they're saying, Jesus, this is your last chance. Clear this up. Rebuke your disciples for treating you as though you're the Messiah, the King, the Lord. And Jesus says... No can do. Uh, you know, the entire creation worships me. This is Yahweh embodied. The entire creation worships me. And if you were to stop these disciples, well, then the rocks would cry out. And what he's in essence saying there is this. If, if you don't recognize this fact, then you don't have the spiritual sensibility of a stone. I, I want to say, then you're stoned, but even that, you're worse than that. The stones have more sensibility than, than, than you've got. Okay, I want to focus here on this, on this crowd. Um, I, I have sometimes wondered why we celebrate Palm Sunday. You know, we have the kids up with the palm leaves, and, and, and the week before Easter, we, we, we celebrate this event. This is what we're celebrating on Palm Sunday. Because in Matthew's version, the people get the, 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 the palms out, and they, the palm leaves, and they kind of honor them that way. Because it seems to me that in some ways, that's a celebration of hypocrisy. This crowd is going to turn on Jesus really, really soon. Within a week. Within a week, at least some of this crowd is in the audience that's crying, crucify him, crucify him. We'd rather have Barabbas than this guy. It's a stunning, massive 
fast turnaround. Here they are, sincerely and passionately worshiping Jesus, honoring him as king. Within a, a week, not even, they want him crucified. Now, what happened? And the answer is what happened is that Jesus got arrested. And when Jesus got arrested, it became very clear to everybody that he wasn't going to be the kind of Messiah they were hoping to have. They think he's going into Jerusalem to free the Israelites, to kick the Romans out of Jerusalem, to reestablish Israel as God's chosen nation and as a sovereign nation. But instead, Jesus gets arrested by the very people he's supposed to be conquering. And to say that these people were disappointed is the understatement of the centuries. Uh, their disappointment turned to rage when they realized that Jesus was not going to play the role that they wanted him to play. This crowd was on board with Jesus as long as they had Jesus in their pocket, as long as Jesus was doing what they wanted him to do, as long as Jesus was riding to victory, they're all gay Jesus. But as soon as it turned to suffering, as soon as it turned against them and it was no longer in their self-interest, what he was doing, well, then they got off board. They were a crowd that was on board with Zechariah 9. Yay, Jesus, fulfilled that prophecy. Zechariah 12, getting pierced, not so much. Massive turnaround. Uh, they were on board as long as uh, Jesus was playing into their theological paradigm, but as minute, the minute he starts stretching that theological paradigm, they got off board. Even his own disciples, those closest to him, they scattered to the wind. Peter denies Jesus three times. Judas betrays Jesus. Jesus is left all alone. What happened? Jesus got arrested. And it's not that these people weren't sincere. They were, I think, totally sincere. It's just that their sincere, sincerity and their enthusiasm didn't go deeper than their own self-interest. It was sincere. It just wasn't very deep. And what that whole passage shows us is how easy it is to fall into hypocrisy, duality, where our words and our lives don't really match up. How easy it is to, with all the sincerity in the world and with all the passion in the world, worship Jesus or sing songs to Jesus and even have token sacrifices where you lay your coat on the ground as, as a way of showing that you're subjected to him, but, but for him not to really have your heart. How easy it is to worship God, but to do it out of self-interest, out of your own motives, because there's something you're going to get out of it. How easy it is to be part of the Zechariah 9 crowd, but then get off when it gets to Zechariah 12. How easy it is to be a, a, a cheerleader for Jesus until it involves significant inconvenience and suffering in our life. What's also easy is for us to sit back and judge this crowd for doing this. How convenient is that? Uh, it could very well be that if we were in their shoes, we'd be doing the exact same thing. The reason why we can so easily judge them is because we're not where they were at. We aren't steeped, most of us anyways, we aren't steeped in this, this military political Messiah idea that, that the, the, the Messiah is supposed to defeat all of our earthly enemies. Some people today apparently still are, but I don't think most of us, most of us aren't, aren't in there. Uh, and, and so we're not steeped with that expectation. They were. Uh, we're not under Roman oppression, and they were. And on top of it, we have the advantage of hindsight. We can look back, and we, we see that he actually does win. He, he rises from the dead. They didn't know that back then. And you take away those factors, and it could very well be that if we were in their shoes, we would be just as shallow, just as fickle, just as turncoat. So maybe rather than sit back and judge these folks, you hypocrites, you losers, 
I, I, how could you possibly turn on our Lord so quickly? How could you possibly you know, be so shallow? Rather than that, maybe it'd be wise to look at this crowd and see if we can't maybe see ourselves a little bit in them, to learn from them, to empathize with them. Because maybe if we were in their shoes, we would do the exact same thing. As I looked at this and thought about this, I'm quite sure that I am at least as hypocritical as these people. Let me tell you a little story. I've had uh, an interesting couple of weeks, the last couple of weeks. Um, I have been on track for the last six months to donate a kidney. Uh, not to anyone in particular, I just felt like I wanted to donate a kidney. I, I, about six months ago, realized that I thought I had two healthy kidneys. Uh, there are people in this world who don't have any healthy kidneys. They've got to spend their life on a dialysis machine, uh, and sometimes they die. And so if I've got two kidneys and only need one, and there's people who don't have any good kidneys, well, then why wouldn't I share one of mine with them? I think it's a, a, good, Christians, a good question for Christians to consider. So I'm on this track to donate a kidney going to the Minnesota Transplant Center, and they, 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 they put you through all these different tests, psychological tests and, and physical tests, you know, and to make sure that you're all healthy and whatnot. I end up getting declined. I know it. And believe it or not, it wasn't for psychological reasons. That, 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 would, that would have been under, you know, understood. I thought they might do that because they asked some questions like, uh, have you, do you ever hear voices or do you ever see visions? And it's like, <laughs> and they're thinking, cuckoo, cuckoo. So, but I actually uh, passed that one. They thought I was sane enough. But physically, I, there's, there's a couple issues. On the one hand, I've got uh, apparently a real innocent benign cyst but, on, on a kidney, but because of where it's located, they couldn't safely take it out and transplant it into another person. And so that would disqualify me. Even though the cyst is no problem, it's just where, it, where it's growing, uh, it creates uh, an issue there. And they won't take the other kidney out because they have a policy that they'll never leave a donor with an inferior kidney. So I'm strapped with two kidneys. Doesn't that make sense? But there was another reason why I was disqualified, and it was a little more serious. The lady says, um, real nice lady at the Minnesota Transplant Center, she goes, uh, we, we did the CT scan on you, and we want you to go see a doctor immediately because your lymph nodes are unusually large. Now, for adults, having lymph nodes in your abdomen area, which is where I had them, that are enlarged, usually means one of two things. Either you have a, an infection, which they were certain I didn't have because I have just had all these blood tests and I'm as clean as can be, or it means you have lymphoma, which is a rather serious uh, matter. Uh, they were especially concerned because in my family uh, line, uh, we have this inherited weird condition where we have all these skin growths, and many of them are precancerous, and sometimes they're cancerous, squamous cell. And uh, if they get into the muscle tissue, they can metastasize and then get lodged in the lymph nodes, and then you're in serious trouble. And I've had three that have gotten into muscle, mu muscle tissue. Uh, they never kill us in our family, or not usually, uh, because we're looking for them. And so as soon as there's any kind of bump, we get it taken out, and that's why we're all full of scars. Uh, but they, they're, they're really not that threatening. But you never know. They always get the margins and all of that, but uh, you never know. And so they're saying, get to a doctor immediately. So I go to my doctor, and he looks at the scans, and he says, this is troublesome. This is worrisome. Uh, you better see a specialist. So he refers me to the specialist. She looks at this uh, CT scan, and she's concerned, but she's also very puzzled. She says, this is one of the oddest scans I've ever seen because... Uh, the, the, oh, really, only one of your lymph nodes is unusually large, and it's rather large. 
But usually it's more of a symmetrical thing. If you've got lymphoma or anything like that, all the lymph nodes kind of in that area get swelled up. So it's weird. Also, it's so large that I would think you'd be having other symptoms. Uh, but you don't seem to have any symptoms. Your tests come out great. Uh, you say you're feeling great. Uh, you know, I'm healthy as a horse. I'm looking better than ever, obviously. And so, so what is the problem here? So then she calls in this other specialist, and they have a team that looks at the CT scan. And it turns out that, uh, that she, she said my, my, my lymph node was shaped like a hot dog, four centimeter long hot dog. And, uh, and she goes, that's just rather, rather odd. Well, it turns out it's not a lymph node at all. It turns out that I, see, when I was 12 years old, I was in this sledding accident where I ran into a telephone pole trying to do slalom skiing on a sled through these telephone poles. Not very bright. Uh, and I ran into the last one, didn't quite make it, smashed my insides to bits, smashed my spleen. And so they took out my spleen, but there's fragments of the spleen still in there that showed up on my CT scan. Now, the spleen's a little bit like a liver. You get a little part of the liver, and it starts to grow to be a little liver and starts doing livering things. Uh, well, the spleen starts to do spleen things. So I've got all these little spleens. I've got like a dozen spleenies inside of me. And they're harmless. In fact, they maybe even do a little bit of good, but they attach themselves to whatever they can, and they just grow. And one of them attached themselves to this lymph node. It's been just growing happy ever since. And so now I got this long spleeny down there where there was a lymph node. But the good news is that there's no lymphoma, and I'm going to live. Hallelujah. I'm alive. I'm not dead yet. <clears throat> All right, so, but the week, the week in between, the week when, when you didn't know, was interesting. It was interesting. What do you do when you find out that there's a good chance, perhaps, that you've got lymphoma? Well, you go skydiving, Rocky Mountain climbing. I rode a bull, 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. I, I... No, I didn't. All the country western people knew what that song was about. You know, Shelly and I really had a lot of peace about this. Honestly, we did. We had a lot of prayer covering, and, and there was a real tranquility there. It, it, it was good. Uh, there was, uh, you can't help but kind of future pace a little bit, and you start fantasizing about your funeral and saying goodbye to your friends, you know, and all those kind of things. We do that on occasion. And so you're kind of doing that, and you become a little more introspective. Now, I wasn't at all afraid, honestly. In fact, there was a part of me that was a little excited. This is my weirdness, my little death wish. Had it since I was a kid. But part of me is going, ooh, the great adventure. It's finally here. And, and you know, okay, that's sick. But, but I, I, I rehearsed for this. Remember we, a couple of months ago, we talked about a prayer as rehearsing for death. And I rehearsed this quite a bit. So I really, honestly, there was no fear there. But some concern and been certainly some introspection. You start to kind of do an inventory of your life. You could, I could be meeting my creator here pretty soon. No, at the same time, I'm reading this book. I've read this before, uh, but I haven't for the, like the last decade or so. It's Devotional Classics, uh, edited by Richard Foster and James Bryan Smith. And what it is is a collection of, of all the greatest spiritual, uh, insightful literature in church history on the spiritual disciplines and growing with the Lord and how to, how, how to become more mature in our, our faith walk and things like this. And so I, for the last month I've been reading this. And this last week as I was reading this with this idea that I could be meet, meet, meeting my maker here rather soon, as I'm reading some of this literature, you know, Thomas Merton and... Uh, uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola and Thomas Kempis and others. I'm reading this stuff and I'm thinking to myself, I suck. <laughs> I, 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 really, I, I, 
you, you read this and, and these folks are so, so single-minded in their devotion to the Lord and they're so sold out to the Lord. There's a piety that just oozes from, from some of their writings and this closeness with God and every area of their life is just subsumed in Jesus Christ and every thought is for Jesus Christ and they're so disciplined in their life. And my life's not like that. My life's not like that. I don't have this kind of complete single-minded sold-outness. I want to, but even that's not completely true. There's a part of me that likes my mediocrity. Honestly, there's a part of me that says, I can look around and compare myself with other people and I feel pretty good. Yeah, well, when you get next to Scripture and the saints, you don't look so hot. And there's a part of me that says, I'm not even sure I want that kind of level of devotion. I am just being honest here. You know, we, we sing the song this morning, you know, Jesus, you're everything to me. Jesus, you're the air I breathe. You know, I live my life for you. You, you know, you are our all. You're the reason why we live. And on and on and on. And there's a part of me, if I'm really raw and honest with myself, I go, I, I ask myself, is that really true about me? Greg, really? 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 <laughs> Maybe on a really good day, a little good morning for a little length of time, but... But honestly, I, I don't feel like I'm totally sold out and my heart's completely captured by his love and I breathe every breath for him and I try to stay present and aware of God's presence, but man, I go long periods of time without that happening. I had never, I've talked a course on this book before, but I never experienced the gulf between the kind of spirituality I, I, I find uh, in these folks and the reality of my life. And for that reason, I think I have to confess that I am a hypocrite. Uh, it's just not there. Um, and so I can't judge this crowd that we're talking about here this morning at all. I'm not going to be able to throw the first stone at them. Rather, I can very easily see myself in their shoes. I'm nothing to write home about, nothing to brag about. I'm very much where these people uh, were. My devotion I think is, I still have a lot of self-interest in me. I'm still kind of a Zechariah 9 guy more than a Zechariah 12 guy. Uh, there's still a lot of self-interest drivenness in me. I think I, you know, do I really submit my will to his will? Do I really, am I, do I really seek, do I really want to know, do I really want to know what he thinks about every area of my life? <laughs> God, what do you think about this? Uh, you know, what, what do you think about my house? What do you think about my lifestyle? What do you think about how I spend my time? What do you think about how I spend my money? What do you think about my friends? What do you think about my, about my ministry? Uh, am I really totally open to go wherever he wants me to go? Really? 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 Uh, I'd like to think so. I convince myself that it's so. But when, when I'm really raw and I'm thinking I might be meeting my maker here any moment, uh, I have to be honest and say that if that's not always the case. I can't judge this crowd. There's duplicity there. So what do you do? What do you do in a situation like this? I, I know I can't just uh, be okay with this. Uh, you know, I, if Jesus is my Lord, I can't just say, hey, well, I'm a hypocrite. He loves me anyway, so I'm just going to go on. No, no, th th that's not right. Uh, but I also know that I can't will myself out of this. Willpower alone is not going to do it. Willpower alone never produces permanent change in our life. So what do we do? And I suspect that if we're honest with ourselves, we'll all admit that there's some duplicity in all of us. And if you think there is no duplicity in you, I'm actually worried about you. Because at least if you're aware of your duplicity, there's hope for you to change. But when you don't even recognize it anymore, now you're in trouble. Um, so what do we do? I wonder if they, we could describe the whole Christian life as simply a matter of, of kind of hypocrites in recovery. This is Hypocrites Anonymous. <laughs> Hi. 
My name is Greg Boyd. I'm a hypocrite. What's your name? <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, they have a 12-step program uh, for people who are coming out of alcoholism. Uh, well, we, I, I have here a three-step program I want to recommend us. What do we do in this, uh, in this state of hypocrisy? Number one, as with Alcoholics Anonymous, you got to confess first. You have to acknowledge the problem. You can't go forward on anything unless you're willing to courageously and ruthlessly deal with reality. What is real in our life? And what's real in our life, if we're honest with ourselves, is that there's duplicity. We're not all we sing about. We're not all we read about. Our life does not always match up with our profession. And to be honest about that, to confess that, but not just once in a while, it needs to be a pattern in our life. To confess to God what is real, to confess to other people what is real. Sometimes I think that Catholics have one advantage that Protestants lack, and that is that they build confession into part of what it means just to be a, a, a Christian. What well, ought to be a part of what it means for all of us to be a Christian, though you don't have to confess it to a priest or a pastor. The Bible says confess your sins to one another. Speak the truth to one another in love. And the word truth means uncovered. And if you're speaking truth, if you're uncovered, if you're unveiled, well, you will be confessing that there are areas of your life that are duplicitous, where you're, you're not all that you know you should be. And see, by, by, by having confession as part of our life, having people in our life that we can be honest with, well, that, that keeps us honest and it keeps us growing. If we don't have that, what happens is that we forget that we're hypocrites. If you don't confess it, if you don't deal with reality, you lose your capacity to even see reality anymore. You start believing your pretense. You stop noticing that there's duplicity in your life, and now you're really stuck. Now, as long as you don't think there's a problem, you can't ever get out of the problem. By confessing regularly to God and regularly to others, we're, we're reminding ourselves that, that our, our lives, are, we're still in process. We still have areas to grow so we don't settle and we don't coast. So confession, say it raw, say it real, say it honest, say it true. Whatever's on the inside, let it come on the outside. And, and the beautiful thing is this, the minute you do that, you're no longer a hypocrite. Hypocrite means this duplicity. Well, the minute you are real with what is on the inside, with what's in your life, you're no longer a hypocrite. So in the process of me telling all of you and 10,000 other people on the airwaves that I'm a hypocrite, I am no longer a hypocrite. Ha, ha, ha. It's a, the, what, the beauty of my job is I get to do this stuff in public. You know, you, I'm asking you guys to do it to two or three other people. I do it to everybody. But uh, that's just part of the calling. So confess. Confess what is real. Number two, rest in God's love, including his love for hypocrites. Rest in his love. I find it to be so, so encouraging when I read this passage that we're studying this morning that Jesus you know, these people are worshiping him and honoring him and laying their coats on the ground. But he knows their hearts. He knows that they don't get it. He knows they're going to turn on, on him. He's been talking about suffering for a long time and they've never gotten it. So he knows what's coming, but he doesn't therefore disparage or mock their, their praise. Even though it's completely wrong-headed. Wrong psalm to apply to me. <laughs> you know, this, you're not getting it, but he still accepts it. In fact, he, can, he confirms it when he says to the Pharisees, look, at if they stopped praising me, the rocks would cry out. Well, he's thereby saying this is genuine praise. They were sincere. Now, it wasn't very deep. It didn't go all the way down. Its motivation wasn't pure. But God, in his love, always accepts us exactly where we're at. 
And so he takes it. That's what they got to offer right now. I'll take it. In fact, Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die for these hypocrites. In fact, it's their hypocrisy that's going to, in part, help him get crucified. Because some of these folks are the ones saying, crucify him, crucify him. Which just shows you that the love of God is greater than all of our sin. The love of God is greater than the sin of duplicity, greater than the sin of hypocrisy. And all growth in the Christian life comes not as we jump through hoops trying to get God to love us, but rather as we rest in God's love, which now motivates us to change. Until you can be okay letting God love you in his passionate love in the midst of your sin, you will never grow out of your sin in a healthy way. You may make resolutions and you may try hard and there'll be little tiny improvements temporarily here and there, but you don't make fundamental changes when your motivation is out of fear or when your motivation is trying to get the carrot at the end of the stick. But it's rather when we can rest in God's love as we are with all of our imperfections and be real in that, and we see that God loves us anyways and he keeps coming back at us and he drowns us in, 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 in the waves of his, of his never-ending love, that begins to change how we see God. It begins to change how we see ourselves. It begins to change how we do life. And now you're in the process of growing. Paul says it's the love of Christ that compels us. And all of our change and all of our growth, it, it, it's, we're not doing the stuff to get God to love us more, but rather realizing his love is there, he motivates to do a whole lot of stuff. And all transformation then is increasingly expressing the truth of what we have up front. That before we ever thought about loving him, he was loving us. And that's what Calvary is all about. So resting in the midst of your imperfections and your faults and in your sins and, 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 and basking in his love in that imperfect state. Not hiding it, not pretending, but rather just as you are, really. Confess your sin and then let him love you in the midst of that. I encourage you to use some of the techniques that were discussed in the Animate series that we went through uh, uh, several months ago. If you weren't here during that, that, that series, I encourage you to download it because it's some very, very important stuff. So that your encounter with God is real and dynamic and transforming. Where you can experience the love of God in the midst of your imperfections. Self-loathing doesn't help. Shame, you can't shame your way into permanent change. It doesn't help. You can say to yourself, you're a loser 10 billion times and you'll be every bit as much a loser as you were when you said it the first time. That's not going to help. That's an enemy strategy. I'll accuse you into positive transformation. No, all growth comes as we learn how to rest in God's love as we are, which then changes us. Which leads to my third and final point. As we are here, a bunch of all recovering hypocrites. Uh, the third is to cultivate new practices in your life. Einstein said it so well when he said, the definition of insanity is to keep on doing the same things and think you're going to get different results. If there's going to be change in our life, there has to be change in how we do our life. Now, all the spiritual disciplines, all the stuff that's talked about in, in, in this book, and I recommend you to get this book or, or some book like a devotional classics uh, edited by Richard Foster. He's got all sorts of exercises and discussion things. It's great to go do with your spouse, your family, uh, small groups or, 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 or friends. Uh, great stuff that helps us begin to install different habits in our life. We're such creatures of habit. And we get into a momentum, a flow, which becomes a rut. Now what the spiritual disciplines do is they don't, they're not like hoops we jump through to get God to like us more. That doesn't work but rather they're ways of positioning ourselves and adjusting our mind and our heart so now we are in a position to receive more of God's love, to see him more perfectly, see him more beautifully, beautifully experience our true identity in Christ, and now we begin to see different results in our life. There's got to be new practices that we cultivate. 
breaking the old ruts that we have been in. And so I confession is, is an example of this. If you install into your relationships the habit of confession, you don't wait till you get caught. So that's what we usually do. I'll confess, well, you have to now. It's much better if you do it ahead of time where you can just be real and honest about the big stuff, about the little stuff, whatever, but you, you confess it. That's a new pattern. And that pattern will begin to make a difference in your life. And all of this, all growth in the Christian life can really, can really be described as a recovery from hypocrisy. As we come to bring together our actual lived life and our identity in Christ. Uh, as we come to bridge the gulf between our inside and our outside. The truth of who we are and the, the false ways that we've been thinking about ourselves. All of it is recovering to become the holistic, whole, dynamic, spirit-filled, loves-filled people that God's called us to be. Cultivate new practices in your life. Now this is a seminar, as you know. And because it's a seminar, this isn't church. You thought you came to church? No, this is, you came to a seminar. This, but, but the seminar is here to help build the kingdom, to help be, be the church. So we have uh, out at the desk assignment sheets that will help you remind, remind yourself of some of these recovery steps and uh, start practicing some of these recovery steps. So as you're going out to get your Boca Burger Burgers, Burger Burger Burgers, whatever they're called, as you go out to get your, the meat, whatever you're going to eat, uh, stop by and get one of these assignment sheets and... Uh, then hopefully we'll see you at the, the baptismal services. I'd like to ask the prayer team to come up, and if you're here this morning with any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come up and receive that prayer as I close with this benediction. Father, we confess truthfully and honestly that we have not, are not, all that we know we can be, all that you know we can be. But God, we thank you that your love that we sang about this morning, your love is greater than all of our sins, including the sin of hypocrisy. And we pray, Lord God, that you'd love us out of our hypocrisy, love us out of our duality, our duplicity, Lord God. Love us to be the kind of people you called us to be, God. Uh, remind us to create space in our life to rest in your love. Remind us, Lord God, to be real with you because you know the truth anyways and to be real with others. And then, Lord God, Holy Spirit, nag us to make changes in the pattern, the flow, the rhythm of our lives so that we're growing in our capacity to experience you more deeply to know you more profoundly and be the people that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's reformed hypocrites said, amen. God bless you guys. Go out and build the kingdom.